Well, good morning. I want to say a big congratulations to the Snover family. Their daughter, Eliana, got married last night, so got to see them. Yeah, everything's good. Her smile was sufficiently telling. She was very happy, and we're happy for them on this wonderful day of new beginnings. Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bible, if you would, with me to the book of Jude. The book of Jude is right in front of the book of Revelation. If you're not quick, you'll miss it. It's very small. But we've been riding through it together and we'll continue today in our study of the book of Jude. <clears throat> I was thinking back this week to a movie that I saw when I was in college. And the movie had Kurt Russell and Ray Liotta, if you know those actors. But uh, the story of the movie was interesting. It was about a businessman. And at the beginning of the uh, movie, this businessman had to deal with a home intruder. So he's upstairs, he's sleeping, and someone breaks into his house. So he has to confront the intruder. And they tussle for a while. And the guy runs out, threatening the family, but never hurts him. And so the police show up. And from that moment on, the businessman forms a companionship with a police officer because the police officer is this tough guy and he offers him all this uh, great advice about home security and they bond. Uh, he even goes riding with the police officer. It's a nice sunny story until the turn of the story is when the police officer actually later breaks into the guy's home himself and tries to harm the guy's family. And I remember... You know, I was 19 watching this movie, and I was just so shocked, like, oh, it's the worst betrayal. Not only a friend, but someone in a position of power and authority has turned against him. This is awful. We ought to live in a world where people in leadership positions or places of protection can be trusted. However, sin has entered the world, and as we've been walking through the book of Jude... We've heard the message that even in the church, there are people who are against God and against God's people. You can't always trust everyone that you meet. So Jude is full of a lot of warnings to us. Last week, Pastor Hunter preached a great sermon about being vigilant and heeding the warnings of Scripture that God has for us in Jude towards the church Today, we're going to see that God charges you to keep watch over yourself, to keep watch over others in the church, so that no harm may come to the bride of Jesus. So there'll be a challenge for you today of keeping watch, of vigilance, watchfulness, keeping. It's an important word for you from God today. So let's get right down to the scriptures here together and see what God has for us. Uh, my first point from Jude is going to be this. Ultimately, remember that God is your keeper. Jude's going to say a lot about keeping here, but let's remember, ultimately, God is keeping you. I'll show you where I get this. Uh, Jude has a very short letter, but he provides for us some bookends a word at the front of the letter and a word at the end of the letter. And those bookends are going to tell, like bread on a sandwich, they're going to kind of tell us what's important to him about the book. So if you read in verse 1, for instance, we read, To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and what? Kept for Jesus Christ. He's talking to us, saying, remember, you are kept for Jesus Christ. Now, if you skip on down the book to the very last paragraph, verse 24, here we have the great benediction that we often read together at TCC. Jude says this, now to him who is able to what? To keep you. So he's talking about, oh, God keeps you at the start. And at the, at the end, he's saying, don't forget, look to the God who's keeping you. We have to keep this in mind. Bible teacher David Helm helpfully calls this the melody of the book. That's the heartbeat. It'll keep playing. 
Uh, in July, we talked about last week how TCC went on mission to Moldova. And so I went there to student camp. It's my fourth year going. And we sing the same worship songs, just like we do here. They're familiar to us. We sing them. And one of them or two of them have great melodies. And they get stuck in my head. And then we come home. And I've still got the melodies in my head. The problem is, I don't speak Romanian. The songs are in Romanian. So oftentimes I'll forget the words and I'll just put in my own filler words, nonsense words that I think might be right. And the other day I was walking around the house just singing this song, humming this melody, and my daughter, precious daughter, was there. And she said, stop, those are not the words. You should be better. This is your fourth year. You should know these words. But I'm thinking, even if I mess up some Romanian, I know the English behind the words. I know the melody, and I'm going to keep it on my heart. And that's what Jude is saying to you today. As we go through this letter, we hear some hard things, but keep the melody on your heart. Whatever happens in the church, God will keep you. God will keep you. Other Bible authors talk about this, of course. In the book of John, you might remember Jesus saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come to judgment, but has passed from death to life. Our God is a keeping God. Later in John, John 6, Jesus will say, For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of the one who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me. Raise it up on the last day. Lose nothing. I'm going to keep it says Jesus. You might remember how the Apostle Paul started his book in 1 Corinthians. He said in verse 8, God will sustain you to the end. I want you to hold on to that today, this week. God will sustain you till the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, we won't go through it, but the entire Old Testament speaks of a covenant-keeping God who's not just keeping his word, he's keeping his people. And Jude wants you to remember, whatever you're going through, God is keeping you. So today we're going to dive into some details of Jude, but let's not stop humming that tune together. God is a keeping God. Ultimately, he will sustain me. Moms, even if this week you gave in to temptations and you just... Ah, Lashed out. You yelled at your kids. Be encouraged. God is not seething. God is not pacing back and forth. Oh, I can't believe she did that. No, he's keeping you. God is keeping you. Husbands, you failed to pursue your wife this week. Did not meet her emotionally where you should have. I have a word of hope. God is holding you. God is keeping you. Even when you're not faithful, God is faithful. Students, you could have gone all week. You were busy. You didn't think about reading the word of God really or communing with him at all. He's not canceling you. God keeps you. See, the picture of people in the Bible is very complex. On the one hand, we're sinners. On the other hand, we're God's children. But he promises to keep us. Why? There's one central reason. He's keeping you based not on your perfection, but on the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. As the hymnist said, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It's enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. So that's the melody God wants running through your head as we read this letter. Why? Because it gets rough. He's going to say some hard things about life in the church. We have to remember God is keeping his people. Here's another reason we have to remember that. Because as Jude goes along, he adds some nuance to this keeping. It might be surprising. You see it in verse 4. Our God's a keeping God and he keeps his people for glory. He keeps his people for Jesus. But he also keeps in another way. We see that. Look in verse 4. For certain people, now he's talking about the church, for certain people have crept into the church unnoticed long ago who were designated for condemnation. Ungodly people. 
designated. It's another way of saying God has another type of keeping. He's keeping some people for his wrath. The people who are evil, the people who later he calls malcontent, they're trying to undermine the church. God is keeping them too. Uh, Early verse 6, he talked about the angels in the Old Testament who had rebelled. And they serve as a reminder, a paradigm, if you would, of God's keeping. Look at verse 6. The angels who did not say within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has what? Kept in eternal change. So our God is keeping in a couple of ways. He's keeping his people with love, grace, and his affections. But he's keeping the rebels for wrath. It's very serious stuff he's talking about. Now, let's keep going on here and look at this keeping theme a little more closely. My second point is that God wants you to keep yourselves. Look down in verse 21. In the book of Jude, look down in verse 21. Jude will say, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Now, wait a minute, Jude. Earlier, we were told that God is our keeper, right? And now he's saying, keep yourself. What's going on here? Is Jude against himself? Is God our keeper or are we to keep ourselves? The answer is yes. These Bible writers can keep both intention. They're not bothered as much as we are by this tension. Theologically, God is keeping us based on what Jesus has done for us. Based on the merits of his work, God is your keeper. And yet, practically, Jude is not afraid to look out to you and say, hey, you have to keep watch on yourself. Otherwise, you're going to slide into the sin persistently as the other troublemakers in the church. So his point here is, watch your heart. Keep your heart. Discipline your motivations. It's amazing how much Jude will talk about the uh, inclinations of our heart, the motivation, especially when he starts talking about people who are harming the church. He'll emphasize their motivations, and that tells me if I want to be someone who loves the church and helps the church, I have to watch my motivations. Look with me in verse 16. He's going to now talk about people who are harming the church And watch how he points to their motivations a couple times. Verse 16, he said, there's some grumblers, some malcontents, and here comes the motivation. What are they doing? They're following their own sinful desires. Okay, I don't want to be in that camp, so I'm going to try to not follow my sinful desires. These people are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism with the motivation to gain advantage. They're looking for their own motivation. That's the sin below the sin. That's what's driving them. That's what's motivating them. So I want to turn against that because I don't want to end up in that camp of God's wrath. Jude is echoing James. If you remember famously in chapter four of James, verse one, James will also talk about trouble in the church. And he'll say, what causes the quarrels and what causes the fights among you? Here's what it is. Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. He's talking about the inner life here, the motivation. You desire and you do not have. You don't get what you want. So you murder. So you covet. You cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. Judas shooting with the same laser focus that James shoots with. They both get it from Jesus. Remember Jesus, Matthew 15. Jesus says, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts. Everything dastardly you've ever seen in the church. Gossip, malcontent, backbiting, false doctrine. This is flowing from a heart that does not treasure Christ. We have to keep our heart beating for Jesus. Famous non-Christian philosopher, Bruce Lee, he once said it like this. Bruce Lee once said, 
if you're going to point at the moon to see its brightness, don't stare at your finger. And here's what he means by this. If you want to guard your heart, it's not just introspection. You need to be looking to Jesus. That's the number one way you can keep yourself. Meditate on God's word. Focus on Christ. Keep yourself. It's so important to Jude in this letter. Here's one reason it's important. When you read Jude's letter, he gives warnings about troublemakers in the church, right? It might be easy to read the letter and first think, well, that's always somebody else's problem, right? I don't think that's what Jude wants. I think he wants you to first keep yourself because sometimes the problem is with us. It's like that dad I heard about. He was doing some yard work in his yard and his neighbor, little three-year-old girl, walks up to him and she tugs on his leg. He stops the weed ear. He looks down. She looks up at him. She says, uh, where does poo-poo come from? And the dad's like, ah, oh, it's disgusting. Ah, oh, but who am I not to educate the child? So he gives a long-winded, somewhat scientific answer, looks back down at the child. She looks confused at him. She says, okay, what about Tigger? <laughs> I think that miscommunication was the dad's fault, right? <laughs> she, Winnie the Pooh, if he didn't get it. Winnie the Pooh. We have to look first to our problems. That's what Jude is saying. Keep watch over yourself. What's an example? How can we do that? Let's take the sin of pride. Say you're striving for humility and you want to keep watch on your own heart and fight against pride and keep humble. How do we do that? Well, in his book, Humility, author Gavin Ortland points out the wrong way we often chase after humility. He says that we often confuse and conflate humility with self-hatred. You might know what this feels like. Um, if you start telling yourself, ah, I'm not worth much. You have a very low self-worth or I'm inferior or I have a lot of self-pity. I'm not worth much at all. You start to confuse that with true humility. And let me tell you, considering yourself worthless is not a gospel truth. God proclaims everyone has worth in the image of God. Furthermore, as God's child... You are doubly worthy. So the answer here, if you're struggling with this self-condemnation, like I do, you want to call it humility, but you're like, oh, that's not really humility. How do you find it? Well, you look to Jesus. Look at verse 21 again. He says, keep yourself where? In the love of God. What does he mean by that? Keep reminding yourself of how much God loves you. God sent his son Jesus for you. What mercy that is. Look what he says here. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Rehearse that you are God's child. Fixate on the coming mercy of Jesus. Don't stare at the finger. Stare at the glory in the moon. This will keep you humble because there's a comparative effect. When you see the great glory of Jesus... You have godly humility, right? It's not a self-depreciating, phony humility. We have to be vigilant as a church of constantly doing this type of inner work or the church is going to go off course. Watch yourselves. Keep your own heart. And in today's text, we not only see a reminder that God is your keeper, that you should be watching yourself. But thirdly, he says, corporately, we need to be keeping ourselves. All right? We need to keep each other. We need to keep the church. Now look down with me in verse 11. He's going to go back to warning us about the trouble that awaits every church. It's the same no matter where you go. There's going to be troubles in the church. You're going to be tempted to think, 
Now, there's something about my denomination that's upside down. It stinks. Let me tell you. Other denominations have problems too. I know enough pastor guys to know we all have our issues. We have to keep on track and watch out for our own church. And this is what Jude is saying. Verse 11, he says, woe to them. Who's the them? The them are the people who've snuck into the church that Jude is writing to that are trying to upturn it, trying to mess it up, trying to destroy it. He wants us to be corporately warned. So he says, woe to those guys. We don't say woe much, unless you're stopping a horse. We don't say woe, but that means trouble's coming for these guys. They're in for it. Look out. They're going to get it. Trouble's coming. Now, if we read from verse 11 to verse 16, we see that these evildoers are described so that we will know who we're truly dealing with. What Jude wants you to do here is the old thing we talk about knowing your enemies, right? Uh, sports teams do this all the time, successful sports teams. I remember when NC State's own Russell Wilson was the quarterback in the Super Bowl with the Seahawks, it's the 2014 season, and they got down to the goal line. You guys remember this play? Oh, man, they had the best running attack, and everybody thought they were going to run it, but the Seahawks thought they would be sneaky, and they came out in a passing formation the defense wasn't fooled because they'd spent the week studying different formations and the defensive coach said yeah we practiced that one and he knew it was a fake run but a real pass so the defender stepped in front of the receiver made an interception the Super Bowl was lost by the Seahawks but it was won by the Patriots because they knew their enemy I think this is the idea Jude wants to get across to us. We have to kind of know our opponents here. So let's look. I've got three questions that we're going to answer about the opponents of the church. They were true 2,000 years ago. They're still true today. Let's be vigilant and watch ourselves. First, verse 11. Woe to these guys, these people who are upturning the church, for they walked in the way of Cain. They abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's era, and they perished in Korah's rebellion. What in the world did he just say? I don't know these people. Well, he's using three notorious Old Testament examples to help you understand who opponents in the church really are. Okay? Those Bible stories that you read in the Old Testament, they actually prefigure or serve as a type of the people we will meet in our churches today. So he gives three of them, three dudes. Let's look at them, see what we can learn. First, verse 11, he said, Cain. These people are like Cain. You remember Cain? He's the first son of Adam and Eve. His name means the one I have acquired in Hebrew. And if you're reading through Genesis, it's really easy, especially for the first time, to think this guy Cain is going to solve the problem. He's going to be the one that crushes Satan's head. After all, we were just promised somebody would come to do that. Turns out that's not Cain's role in the story. Adam and Eve have a second son. What's his name? We just sang about him. Abel. His name actually comes from the Hebrew word hevel. And Pastor Ron Jur taught us in Ecclesiastes what hevel means. Anybody remember that? It's okay if you don't. It means, means vapor. It means mist, right? Mist, vapor. It, it, it's not going to stay along, along with us very long. It's vapor. And sure enough, in the story, Abel, Abel is a vapor. It doesn't last long because he presents a sacrifice to God that is pleasing. And Cain, his brother, offers one and it's not pleasing to God. We're not given a lot of detail. First John will look back on this and said, well, Cain was evil. Cain had evil deeds. So Cain goes and he murders Abel. John said he was full of Satan, full of the evil one. And that's the person, Cain, who Jude chooses to describe Someone who is making trouble and trying to undermine God's church. We have to realize there could be evil among us. That's a scary thought. But this is Jude talking, not me. 
Look at Balaam. Second example in the Old Testament. Balaam, unfortunately, is outshined by his pet. He has a donkey who God famously made speak by a miracle. So his donkey's actually more famous than he is. If you read the story, I can tell you this. Balaam had less love for that donkey, almost less love than Hunter has for his dog. We heard that last week, right? He mistreats his animal, but if you read more of the story, you find out that Balaam is motivated by greed. He has to give a prophecy. He's asked to do some things by the enemies of God's people, and he actually starts to think about doing it, and it's because he's greedy. Jude says here he was doing it for the sake of gain. So why is this comparison here? Look out. If there's someone making trouble in the church, they're often motivated by greed. Sadly, I have experienced this at our church here at TCC. 20 years, you start to see it all. It's the real thing. Look out for these balance. Thirdly, he mentions Korah. Why does he mention this guy Korah? His story is also found like Balaam in the book of Numbers. Korah was a leader under Moses. And the way God set up God's people, Moses was the head leader. And there were some other leaders under him. One day, this guy Korah decides, I don't like my place. I'm going to gather 250 others with me. And I'm going to say something to Moses about this. So he goes to him, and he actually says the words to Moses, Hey, Moses, you've gone too far. You exalt yourself as God's leader, but all of us are just as holy as you are. So then in a bizarre scene, Moses says, Okay, come on up here, and we'll see which one God chooses, me as the leader or you and your 250. And Korah, just like a spoiled little kid, his answer is, you know what? I'm not even leaving my tent. Me and my families aren't going to come to where you want to meet. We're going to stand here in the entrance of our tent. Moses' response is from God. He says, well, clear everybody away from those tents real quick. And then God's reaction is as spectacular as it is gruesome. He causes a localized earthquake Plates shift, the ground opens, and the 250 men, their families, Korah, are swallowed up by the earth, and then the earth closes back up. They are destroyed by the judgment of God. Why is Jude bringing this up? He wants you to know that people causing trouble, spreading false doctrine in the church, are rebels at heart. They want control. That's who they truly are. Are. Now, locate your mind back in Jude. He's just given us some Old Testament examples that relate and correlate to the troublemakers in the church. That type of teaching is not for everybody. So Jude is now going to say, okay, some of you guys, you like illustrations, you like metaphors, you like word pictures. That's how you learn. So now I'm going to give you some word pictures about troublemakers in the church. And they all kind of have this same message that there are frauds among us. Not frogs. There are frauds among us. I remember my freshman year at the University of Tennessee sitting in an engineering class getting the word that you've probably gotten if you were ever in any type of higher education, I'm sitting there and the professor steps forward and he says, look at the person on your right. So I'm like, I look over here. Now look at the person on your left. Look over here and he says, one of you will not make it past two years in engineering program. And I'm thinking, oh, there's a pretender here. I wonder who it is. <laughs> so I kid you not, I look over to my right, trying to be sneaky, and I'm like, and this guy on my right, he's like, 
And he was right. <laughs> Year two, I was out of there, switching majors. I was a fraudulent engineering student. More seriously, Jude says you have to look out because there are frauds among you. And then he gives this very beautiful uh, word here from verses 12 through 13. A bunch of word pictures. We'll talk about them. Here we go. These false teachers, they're hidden reefs at your love feast. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, they're uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It's intense. Should curl your nose a little bit, but let's look at these word pictures, see what he's saying here. First, he said, these people are hidden reefs. They even come to the Lord's Supper and your other celebrations. Our love feasts are sometimes barbecue over at the property. The people that you see there, some of them might try to take down the church. They're hidden reefs. I hear that language, I think, about the Titanic. Remember the sinking of the Titanic? They were out. It was very cold. It was very dark. They were going full speed. All of a sudden, an iceberg appears out of nowhere. They got 30 seconds to turn the Titanic. Well, they reacted pretty well, and they got the thing turned to where they just went right beside it and scraped it a little bit. Some snowballs fell on the deck, and they, some of them thought, whew, that was a close one. But what they forgot, that when you're talking about icebergs, 90% of its mass is underwater. It's hidden. So there was a spur that ripped a 300-foot gash in the hole of the Titanic, and it came sinking quickly down. Jude is saying, look out. There are people against the church where most of their agenda is hidden. 90% of who they are is undercover. It's cloaked. Watch out. They're hidden reefs. He also says they're true. They're unlike true shepherds. These phony leaders, instead of feeding the flock, they feed themselves. Instead of protection, they're looking for promotion. Then he says they're like rain clouds that hover over your yard and you put a lot of time into your yard, you just want them to rain. And the cloud sits there and it never drops an ounce of rain on your yard. Your yard doesn't grow. They're like rain clouds. False doctrine will always leave you unfulfilled. Think about planting your garden. Maybe some of you guys plant your gardens. I have a few uh, jalapeno plants at my house that my wife has planted and they are producing very much in contrast to the habaneros I have planted in the past that produce nothing. And his, that's his comparison for you. If you've ever planted something and it just didn't turn out, just didn't produce, that's going to be the feeling you have if you follow one of these false troublemakers. Next, he's talking about uh, something else here. Maybe you've been to the beach here lately, summertime, here in North Carolina. I love the beaches. What I don't like is sometimes after the waves come in and then they recede, there's this slimy, gooey stuff on the sand. You ever seen this stuff? That's the comparison that Jude is going to use when he talks about the production of these false teachers. He says their shame is like this. They have so much shame and it's nasty. It's like this gooey, slimy stuff. He's actually using language from Isaiah. We read from Isaiah earlier. Isaiah 57, 20. Isaiah says this, the wicked are like the tossing sea. It cannot be quiet and its waters toss up mire and dirt. Such is the picture Jude chooses or troublemakers in God's church. Next, he says, these guys are like stars and planets in the sky. Stars that move around. You might think, well, that's not so bad. I like to see a shooting star. Planets are cool at night. 
But that's not cool if you're trying to navigate. In the ancient world, you wanted your stars to stay still because you want to drive your ship by where it's at in the sky. Jude said, this is like a star that moves around. You can't navigate by that at all. You can't trust it. It's fraudulent, worthless frauds who promise, but they do not deliver. That's the overall uh, message we get from these metaphors here today. That's who the rebels and churches will be. Now, you know their true colors. Let's ask one other question here. What will be the fate of the false disciples? What will be the fate of these false disciples? A guy named Jeff Shara wrote a book called uh, The Last Full Measure. And in it, uh, part of the book is telling the story of the Union general in the Civil War named Joshua Chamberlain. You may know Chamberlain. She's a pretty big deal. Uh, he was a leader at the Battle of Gettysburg. As the Confederates were going up, he actually said, we can't stop them unless we run down the hill with bayonets. So Chamberlain did that. When Lee's army, uh, the Army of Northern Virginia, surrendered and ended the Civil War effectively, Chamberlain was the man who received his surrender he was a tough guy. He had no less than six horses shot out from underneath him while he was in battle. And yet, in this book, we're told the one thing that really kind of made him squeamish was when he had to deal with some deserters from his unit. Guys that were on the front lines, and they left, leaving their friends to die. So they had to round them up. And the judgment of the military at that time was nothing less than the firing squad. And we're told of how Chamberlain really struggled with this. It was brutal to think about this judgment. I wanted to share that because I think as you read about the judgment against those who rebel against God, you might have that same struggle. It's not pretty to think about God's judgment. And yet, Jude gives it to you here. He wants you to be sobered, and he wants you to be alert. So let's look here with Jude. What will be the fate of those who cause trouble in the church? Look at verse 13. We see here that these false teachers are headed towards forever darkness. Beginning in verse 14, Jude is going to quote from a popular book that was going around at the time. It would have been on the bookshelves of a lot of his listeners. It's called First Enoch. It's not a book of the Bible. And yet he quoted from it because he thought they would know it. And verse 15 clearly states that these greedy rebels in the church will receive judgment from the Lord. Judgment. Look back in verse 7. Again, when he was talking about the rebellious angels... As a paradigm, he said those people were going to go, those angels were going to experience darkness and eternal fire. He's stacking up the judgment words, the condemnation words for those who rebel against God's church. The language is consistent with the rest of scripture here. Jesus pulling from Isaiah's description calls hell a place where the fire is never quenched. Kind of grossly, Jesus says the worms or the maggots that eat bodies, metaphorically, they're never going to die. In other words, you're going to keep dying, keep being destroyed forever in hell. Surely eternal torment awaits those who attempt to game the local church, attempt to play the local church, pull one over on the local church. Nothing short of hell awaits these opponents, according to the word of God in Jude. Jude says these are people who pervert the grace of God and deny who Christ is. They will forever die in hell. Next, very practically, like a good preacher, Jude is going to leave us with some tips on how to spot a false Christian. Now, you have to be careful here. He's not wanting a witch hunt. He's not saying 
look at everybody in a sneaky way like I looked at the guy in engineering class. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying you have to be watchful. So understand how the spirit-led wisdom has to work here. I want you to know what to look for, but I also don't want you to go overboard and start condemning everyone. But he does say you need to know what they're going to look like. So he's going to start here, verse 16. How can you identify these false disciples? Well, they're grumblers, they're malcontents, following their own sinful desires, they're loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Years ago, a pastor named Mark Dever gave us what he called the nine marks of a healthy church. Maybe you read that. Long before Mark Dever, Jude gave us the nine marks of a false disciple. Here's what you can look for. So here's nine things Jude says you can look for again. He's not saying, you know, get the hammer out where everything's a nail. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying, be watchful. Here's the first thing I want to mention to you from verse 16. Look out for grumblers and malcontents. What does that mean? Well, did you ever meet this guy who doesn't seem to be happy with anything in the church? I'm not happy with the music. I wish we'd sing different song. You moved the drums today and I don't like it. Little things. I don't like the way that fellowship went. I wanted chicken and you served, or more seriously. I can't stand the way we're using our money here. I wish we'd always use it here. Paying these people too much and we're not paying enough over here. I'm not talking about, what I'm not talking about is healthy dialogue. We want healthy dialogue. But there is such a thing as a grumbler and a malcontent. And Jude says, watch out for those who never seem content with the gifts that God has graciously given you. Number two, the mark of a false disciple, loud mouth boasters. People that speak with arrogance, not only in their words, but you can sense it about them. This dude's arrogant. He's full of himself. Their speech is bombastic. They want you to know how much they know. Famously in Proverbs 6, 16 we have a list of the things that God hates. You can go to Proverbs 6.16 and look. Right at the top of that list, guess what it is? The writer says, haughty eyes, proud eyes, a face that's, uh, you should listen to me on this issue because I'm the expert. Look out for that guy, says Jude. Watch out for him. Number three, from verse 16, folks who show flattery or favoritism. The word in Greek can mean either one there, favoritism or flattery. Listen to what writer Ray Gallia writes about how favoritism undermines the gospel. He says, by showing preferential treatment to one group over another, we relate to others, not in terms of the gospel of grace, but in terms of how they can advantage us. We become utilitarian where people are reduced to objects for consumption what happens when favoritism runs amok. So we should look out for it. Watch out. Here's the last one from verse 16. Um, oops, sorry. We're going to switch now to verse 8. And the next four will be from verse 8. Somewhat strangely, he said, there will be some people who rely a lot on dreams well, people were lying on dreams will stir up trouble. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, in that culture, dreams were very prominent. And what was probably happening is someone would come to church and say, you know, Pastor Ronger, you know, Pastor Hunter, you know, deacons, I had this dream. And God said, we need to go that way. Now, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that, but here's what can happen when subjectivity often rules. In our context, you're much more likely to hear someone say, you know, I've been reading the Bible lately and I feel like God is showing me and then they'll go off track. Uh, I feel like God's showing me the Trinity is not real. That's just made up. That's what I learned in my quiet time. Or I had a moment with God and I prayed about this and I, I really think adultery is okay in my case. I really think I can leave my wife. One of those examples I've actually heard, and one of them I haven't. These are real things. 
look out for someone who doesn't base their feelings about the church on the word of God. Instead, they have a subjective, personal, privatized knowledge about what the church should do. Look out. Fifthly, verse 8, watch out for people who defile the flesh. Now, it's a confusing phrase there. In the Bible, that means sexual deviancy, all right? We're to watch out for that. Now, that's tricky because that's something that's usually behind closed doors, right? But apparently, you think sometimes you can sense this. Maybe in the way someone's handling themselves with the opposite sex. Maybe in the way they're joking in a coarse way. We need to watch out for people who are sexually deviancy because Jude said there's emerging between this and trying to take down the church. So let's watch out for it. The sixth one, verse eight. Watch out for people who reject authority. Like Korah, you might meet people who are always pushing against authority in their jobs. Let me tell you about my boss. Got pulled over for speeding. Ah, I didn't like what that officer said. The government, I don't like the state government and the federal government, that's even more, you know. These things that God has ordained over us, people are always rebelling against worse. They're rebelling against the word of God. They rebel against their elders. They just don't like authority. And Jude says, man, don't tell me that you are against all authority and you don't want to be ruled by anyone because at the essence of Christianity, you have to be under the authority, especially the Lord Jesus. Now, don't tell me you're following Jesus as Lord when you can't even follow these structures that he has put in place. Watch out for people who are persistently rejecting authority. The seventh one, this is the most bizarre, but we'll talk about it because Jude says it. He says, some people are going to blaspheme the angels. Now, 2,000 years ago, that's how much we have to understand what he was saying here. What was probably going on in the first century is people were bad-mouthing the supernatural. Either good angels or bad angels, they were saying things like they don't exist. And today, in our Western culture, we do have a tendency to downplay the supernatural. The fact that there's something going on in the spiritual realm right now that we just can't see. You will meet people who are overly pragmatic and they deny that there are angels, that there are demons, and that they are working. The angels for us, the demons against us, people who want to mess up the church, they're not having any of that. Spiritual warfare is not their thing. So they blaspheme this. Watch out for those who disregard the supernatural. Verse 18, we see another mark of a false disciple here they are called scoffers. These scoffers are also mentioned in the book of Proverbs. Here one author writes, helpfully Tim Keller, he writes, what happens to the scoffer, the man or woman who always has to be right, who derides rather than engaging with opposing views? That's what a scoffer is. They deride you instead of engaging with your viewpoint. Proverbs says that the first result is loneliness. Scoffers impress the impressionable if they are allowed to hold forth. But as time goes on, the scoffer not only destroys relationships, but is listened to less and less by the public. Often the scorner might have a valid point, but because of his or her dogmatic and proud attitude, no peace is possible in the community. Jude says, watch out for this dogmatic scoffer. Never wrong. Doesn't want to hear any other argument. He just scoffs at other people's argument. Finally, verse 19, we're told to watch out for worldly people. What does he mean by this? Well, he defines this one for us, so it's easier. He says, these are people who are devoid of the spirit. They're going to seem spiritually insensitive to you. They will not be characterized by love, joy, peace, all of the fruits of the Spirit, 
will not be hovering around this person in the church. Instead, they will be worldly. They will be natural feeling. They'll be bound to the limits of this world. Watch out for people who are not alive to the Spirit. And I've seen these people. This is real stuff. I'm not going to name names, but we've seen this happen in the church. It's a very real danger. And Jude says it's the responsibility of all of us to protect the church. We must keep ourselves. Many years ago, hymn writer Charles Wesley wrote these pointed words in his hymn called Watchfulness. He wrote it for God's people. He says, gracious redeemer, shake this slumber from my soul. Say to me now, awake, awake, and Christ shall make thee whole. Touch them with thy mighty hand. Alarm me in this hour and make me fully understand my danger and thy power. Give me on thee to call, always to watch and pray, lest I into temptation fall and cast my shield away. For each assault prepared and ready may I be, forever standing on my guard and looking up to thee. Oh, do thou always warn my soul of evil near. When to the right or left I turn, the voice still let me hear. Come back this way, come back and walk therein. Oh, may I hearken and obey and shun the paths of sin. Charles Wesley knew what's up. He knew that we in the church are always in danger of letting our guard down and allowing evil to triumph. So today, God is calling you to remember God will keep his people. In the midst of conflict and all the challenges, God's going to keep you. But you also have to watch your own heart. And we also have to watch one another. But here's the deal. He's not talking about an internal, introspective only type of watching. It's like a marathon runner. Those guys don't run the race looking at their feet. They run the race looking at the finish line. And Jude is saying to you, as you are being watchful, look towards Jesus. Look to his character, treasure Christ with your affections, and wait for the blessed coming of his return. Then and only then will the bride be protected. Let's pray together. Oh God, we do pray. I pray that we would spend this week looking unto Jesus, who is not only the founder of our faith, but Jesus is the perfecter of our faith. Oh God, give us the wherewithal. Give us the watchfulness, the vigilance to look unto Christ today. The best way to watch ourselves is to watch him. Let us look at the moon. God, as a church, we know we are not perfect. And yet at the end of the day, we are trusting you. You are the good shepherd in Jesus. And as we move to the time of celebrating your communion, God, I pray that we would base our hope on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.